1: To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees.
3: Listener discretion is advised. I was sitting at Quince and Kirby waiting on a call. I heard Paul come in on the radio, and, well, I couldn't hear him, but he talked to the dispatcher, and the dispatcher started repeating what Paul said. He said, You mean Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot?
4: And he said, Yes. And then he said, Well, I'll send an ambulance. And he said,
3: I don't believe an ambulance can help him. Because he would repeat it back, so I knew what he was saying. And he said, well, I'll send an ambulance anyhow and send the police. These are the words of cab driver Louis Ward, taken from his testimony at the civil trial in 1999 and read to us by a voice actor. Ward is repeating the words of another taxi driver, no longer living, who told him what he saw when Martin Luther King was killed. Ward had been in another part of town when he heard his dispatcher talking to Car 58 at the Lorraine Motel. King had just been shot, an ambulance was being sent. Ward then heard the dispatcher tell the cabbie to take his fare to the airport and that he would call the police and tell them what the driver had seen. Something about the man who shot King running up the street. Ward wasn't sure that he had heard it right. The man who shot King was running up the street? On impulse, Ward drove to the airport where he found the driver of Car 58 who told Ward and two other cabbies what he had seen. Ward would never see that driver again. And when he found out what happened to him the very night that King himself was killed, Louis Ward began to fear for himself and his family. So for 25 years, he kept what he knew to himself. Then, when the kids were grown, he decided to come forward.
5: I called the union hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King.
3: The authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except, it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King.
4: James Earl Ray was a pawn for
3: the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV.
6: The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it.
5: And I've lived with it so long, my children, they they scared for me. The Lord told me to not
3: to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is the MLK Tapes. When Martin Luther King was killed, Louis Ward was 41, married with three children. He had been a federal security guard at a local army depot for 20 years. He drove a cab part-time and was driving the night King was shot. When he decided to come forward some 25 years later, Ward first went to the police, then to the attorney general, but they were not interested in what he had to say. Then he found Bill Pepper, who sat him down and turned on the tape recorder. The
7: home of Mr. Lewis Ward, 2440 Cardigan Drive. Mr. Ward was a taxi driver for a a yellow cab back in 1968, and on the evening of the killing he was driving and he was uh, parked. Then he heard a report come over the radio to the dispatcher, and the report was from the driver of cab number 58, whose name he does not recall at this time.
3: Ward would tell Pepper how it was that he heard about the killing over the radio and how he went to the airport to meet with the driver of car 58. He said the man told him, and the other cabbies, that he had been at the Lorraine picking up a fare, a black man with a lot of luggage. Then he said something that stuck in Ward's mind.
4: He believed the passenger he picked up, he knew what was
3: going on. The passenger knew what was going on? What made him think that? It went like this. As the driver was putting the last bag in the cab, he was looking in the direction of the brush-covered yard facing the motel, But the passenger seemed to want to divert his attention.
4: I was looking in the direction of the guy that's under seat. He punched me and said, look up there. After Martha Luther King, is standing up there by himself. My so is, he said, that's something you don't usually
3: see. So the passenger told the cabbie to look the other way, just in time to see the bullet explode on Dr. King's face. The driver said he immediately turned back and saw a puff of smoke rising from the yard. Then a man appeared out of the bushes, and though he had no rifle, the way he was moving made the driver feel that he was the one who had fired the shot. It's we
4: out of the bushes, and then I seen the guy up. He didn't have no rifle, but I, said, "I know that, that the one that had to shoot him.
3: According to the driver, as related by Louis Ward, the man who came out of the bushes jumped down off the wall not far from where the cab was and ran up the street toward a police car a block or so away. The driver said he immediately reported what he had seen to his dispatcher. He first said to tell the police the man was running north, but then the man seemed to disappear into the police car, which then burned rubber as it sped away, making so much noise that the dispatcher said he could hear it over the radio. So Ward went to the airport and heard the driver of car 58 tell him and a couple of other cabbies what he had seen when King was shot. But Ward wasn't the only one who came to the airport for that story. I was
4: standing there talking, the squad car drove up, with a lieutenant and a patrol. They walked up and of the And the lieutenant had a tail.
3: Ward and the others stepped away, but they were close enough to hear what was being said, and the driver told the police the same story that he had told them a few minutes before.
4: So he came. The same report that, you know, the was right and the, the lieutenant to the they got to the
3: report after the police left the dispatcher called the driver of car 58 and said that he was wanted down at the cab garage so the driver went back a little later Louis Ward took a fare to town and drove by the garage
4: they were several blood car cars so then and I figured it They were, you know, taking some
3: more report. Because of the unrest now in Memphis, Ward's security work increased and it was days before he returned to drive a cab.
4: Well I went into the office when I first came back to work. I went in four or five half hours standing around talking and I just asked them and that's when they told me, I don't even know what which one told me, but said that he'd been told to have a high speed automobile between Memphis and Weston. I got the paper I thought, well, you know, I'll read about it. With page to page, and there was never nothing put in the paper about.
3: The fact that the driver of car 58 was said to have been murdered and that nothing had been said about it in the newspapers put fear into Louis Ward. With a family to protect, Ward felt the best thing would be to button up and keep quiet. And that's what he did for 25 years. But when he did come forward and finally found someone who would listen to him in the person of Bill Pepper, he could no longer remember the name of the murdered cab driver. And Pepper knew this detail was important.
7: Mr. Ward, can you describe this man? How old was he? And you you don't recall his name, do you?
4: I was about 41 or 42 myself, but he was probably about 60 then. I knew his name at that time, but I just tried my best to think. I cannot get that name that
3: save my life. But the identity of the driver is key. So towards the end of the interview, Bill Pepper comes forward with an interesting idea, hypnosis.
7: The ability to bring back the name of the, of the driver would be very helpful if that could be done. How would you feel about undergoing hypnosis for the purpose of taking you back and putting you face to face with this man? to see if you could remember his
3: name. Ward wasn't exactly eager, but he did agree to the hypnosis, and that session took place a few weeks later. The audio quality of that tape is awful, so I'll do my best to tell you about it. Well relax you are clear you'll see it. You see yourself behind the wheel of the cab. You picture yourself behind the wheel of the cab. The hypnotist Dr. Joseph Cassius begins the session in a way we've all seen in the movies. I'm going to take you back in time, Louis. In an imaginary taxi, I'm going to take you through a tunnel of time. The more relaxed you are, the more it will come to you, bit by bit, piece by piece, more and more and more. Ward apparently goes into a light trance, but little in the way of new memories appear. The obvious problem is that Ward didn't witness the shooting. He was only told about it so it's not as though hypnosis could help him remember something he had forgotten. Even so, success was still in reach if Ward could remember the name of the driver who Ward now thought may have been called Paul. Dr. Cassius does his best. More and more will come to you, better and better each time. The last name will come to you. Paul's last name will come to you.
4: Now, has Paul's last name come to you?
3: A name finally comes to Louis Ward. A last name to go with Paul. It was Harvey. Dr. Cassius decides to try it out. Harvey? Harvey? Paul Harvey. Yes, Paul Harvey. Neither man made the connection at that moment. But in the 1960s, Paul Harvey was a ubiquitous ABC radio journalist with his own self-important manner of speaking. People loved him. If you drove your car anywhere, you'd hear him on the radio. And he would end each broadcast in his own stylized way. You know, it's just a little bitty crack in Mrs. Bacherman's driveway in Kennesaw, Nebraska. I mean, a teensy crack. You couldn't push a pencil through it. And
4: yet out of that crack, two watermelon vines are growing. And they've produced seven big watermelons.
6: She still can drive around them, but she can no longer get in the garage door. One thing more, today's bumper snicker. This was seen by Marshall Miller in Stone Mountain, Georgia. It says, vote yes on Preparation H. Paul Harvey, good day.
3: So hypnosis offered up a former well-known radio personality as the possible driver of car 58. Not the result they were hoping for. Pepper then tried to find people who were drivers at Yellow Cab when King was killed to see if they would know. But no one he found wanted to talk about it. And more strange, No one could remember who the dispatcher was that night. But Ward clearly remembered the police taking a statement at the airport. So Pepper went looking for it.
7: We couldn't find them, as I recall. We didn't find any record of uh, any police interrogation or any police
3: interview. And that's where things stood for a few years. It was like Louis Ward had dreamed the whole thing. But then, in 1999... Bill Pepper got some information that the man they were looking for might be a fellow named Paul Butler. The name rang a bell in Ward's head, and he felt that this was probably the guy's name. And the pieces seemed to fit. Butler did drive for Yellow Cab, he was in his 60s back then, and he seemed to have disappeared around 1968. So when Ward took the witness stand in late 1999 at age 71, he told the story publicly for the first time and gave the name of the driver of car 58 as Paul Butler. Within a matter of months, there was an official response to Louis Ward's shocking story. It came in the Department of Justice report of the year 2000, sometimes known as the Reno report, which said that Paul Butler died in August of 1967, a full eight months before Martin Luther King was murdered. That would seem to be conclusive. Butler couldn't possibly tell Ward about the murder of King if he was already dead. So what happened here? Was the Paul Butler name a simple mistake? Or disinformation? Had someone monkeyed around with the death records? I had seen such things and worse in the LAPD's totally corrupt RFK murder investigation, so I don't rule it out. But false death records in this instance seem unlikely to me. So let's accept that Paul Butler died in 1967. Does that solve the puzzle? I don't think it does. Because in order for that fact to make Kev 58 dissolve into the mist, Louis Ward's account would have to be a fabrication, a lie, and a very big one. And I don't think it is a lie, because everything about Ward and his story rings true. And Ward first approached the police and then the AG before he ever went to Bill Pepper. And there is no conceivable reason for him to come forward at this point in his life and invent a detailed and elaborate lie about the murder of Dr. King. And if Ward's story is true, it doesn't matter what the driver's name was. Another put-down of Ward was that he really isn't a witness, just someone passing along some unsubstantiated hearsay. And that might be partly true. But within an hour of King being shot, Louis Ward became an eyewitness because he was out at the airport when the police showed up. The lieutenant wrote the report down, says Ward, yet there is no such report in the police files. Of course, if such a report were preserved, the police would have some explaining to do. Who was the running man? Who was driving the police car that took him away? And why were they so desperate to leave the scene of a crime? As far as Ward's story being unsubstantiated, that would cease to be the case 15 years later, when another person would come forward, now 40 years after King's death, with a very detailed eyewitness account of the murder of Dr. King an account that supports the things reported by Louis Ward, including a positive ID of the man who jumped the wall and ran up the street.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half
6: I cranked the bike up, hauled ass up Summer Avenue, hit Parkway, come all the way up, turn, come down, pulled in between the damn boards up there. The uh,
7: the billboards, yeah, and the, the billboards.
6: As soon as I pulled in, a I turned left. Line. Right, one side is a parking lot. Right. The other side is well, a I, it was all you could park something in there anywhere, I guess. So, yeah. so
7: where did you meet uh,
6: Junior? He was standing in behind that poster board. Okay. So was um, Jars. Jars was out there at that point as well.
3: In 2009, some 40 years after the fact, Ronnie Lee Atkins, who we've already met in episode seven, came up from Texas with his lawyer, Stephen Tolan, and gave a seven-hour deposition regarding his family's involvement in the murder of Martin Luther King. At the time King was shot, Atkins was 16 and on a motorcycle out on Mulberry Street near the Lorraine. In his deposition, Atkins often refers to Junior who was his half-brother and 20 years his senior, and who, according to Ronnie Lee, replaced his father upon his death in a leadership role in the plot to kill King. The person asking the questions here is Bill Pepper.
6: Then what did you do? I did what he told me to do. Which was? Ride around. You told me to ride around down there if I saw anything that was out of order that I knew was crooked, get up there and let him know. I told him all right. Okay, so
7: you went down to Mulberry?
6: Man, I was all over the place down there. I went to Union Station. uh, I seen Holly. Holly was going up on the station. Uh, I went around and checked and was checking on uh, Chess. Chess wasn't in his
3: spot. According to Atkins, the plot to kill King had several alternate scenarios if the attempt to shoot him on the balcony did not come off as planned.
6: If Solomon was driving like he was supposed to, he was going to put King up front on the passenger side. That would give Holly a straight shot all the way down that street. There was no way for him to turn and come up main because the police blocked that off where the fire station was. Just past there, before you got to that corner. You're saying the police would have been there? Uh... They was already there.
3: And if King was only wounded by the shot, there was something else in the works.
6: There was a man that was assigned to get to King before anybody could run up from anywhere to get to King and make sure he was dead. It was already arranged that he was to go to St. Joseph Hospital down the street. He never was gonna make it out of that emergency room alive.
3: Bill Pepper then asked Atkins to describe the things he saw when King was shot.
6: I was leaning back against the bike when I heard the shot, when I saw him get hit, and when I saw him go down. Now, I'm no doctor, but there was no question to me that the man was hit hard. I mean, he was hit hard. So, I see the man jump over the edge of where the trees met the rim, and start sideways across the street, I immediately turn around and go that direction. So I didn't have to worry about, what I'm trying to tell you is, I didn't have to worry about anybody coming down through here, and I didn't have to worry about Holly's job. It was like once the shot went off, it was every dog for his own.
7: Did you know that a man was gonna come down over the wall?
6: I didn't know that he was gonna run out through there. Like, no, sir, I really didn't. Did you recognize him at the time? I did. And who was he? It was Earl Clark.
7: So you recognized Earl Clark coming it. down
6: and running north on Mulberry. Yes, sir. He ran north. He ran Caddy Corner. He was running northeast. Yeah. He was running across. Cab driver was there, had the doors open, had to back up there was a black guy there with a shitload of bags trying to get in there Uh, everybody's running and coming screaming and shit and guys going up the stairs and I noticed the guy that Junior and Holloman was talking to the day before the black guy that ended up checking to make sure that King was dead I can't think of what that guy's name was Morell McCullough yeah McCullough I guess that's him but he was a fed anyway, so they was. Uh, uh, he was one of Holloman's guys.
3: When King went down, Merrill McCullough was in the parking lot below. But in a flash, he ran up the stairs and was the first to reach Dr. King. He is the man leaning over King in the iconic photo of people pointing on the balcony. There is no dispute that McCullough was a federal agent on loan to the Memphis police who had successfully infiltrated the invaders, the Memphis Black Radical Group. As we heard from Ronnie Lee Atkins, there are some who believe that it was McCullough's job to ascertain if King had been fatally wounded. But McCullough, while acknowledging his undercover role, has always denied that he had anything to do with the assassination. But leaving McCullough aside, what Ronnie Lee Atkins saw on the other side of Mulberry Street may have more bearing on the case. Because he saw a man jump off the wall, run up the road, and hop into a car that sped away, just like what the cab driver had reported to Louis Ward. The only important difference between the two accounts is that Atkins not only saw the man come over the wall, he knew who he was. It was Captain Earl Clark. And Atkins got a good look at him because he almost caught up with Clark on his motorbike.
6: When I got behind him and got to the corner, I, he had done gotten that Chevrolet and there was, there was a cop car in front of him that pulled off and went to the corner and turned left. They pulled off, went to the corner and turned left. I pulled in behind them and went to this building right here.
3: Pepper had suspected that Captain Clark was one of the people in the brush covered yard facing Lorraine, so he was not surprised by this report. But he also felt strongly that there was a third person there. In fact, he had someone in mind. But now, there was a person who could solve this mystery once and for all. So Pepper asked the question.
7: All right, and, and who was the guy in the bushes? Who was the third shooter? My brother. Russell?
6: Mm-hmm.
7: He, he took it on himself?
6: I believe so. Did he tell you that he was the one who did the shooting? Straight up? Yeah, he told me he popped you know, I mean, if he popped him, he popped him. There was three guys out there. It was Earl Clark, my brother, and, and the old man. And the old man didn't have guts to do it. And I don't think they trusted him to do it. And he was too shaky and shit.
3: According to Atkins, the three men out in the yard behind the grill were the old man, who was Lloyd Jowers, Captain Earl Clark, who Jowers had already placed there, and Atkins' brother, Russell Jr., which is new and surprising information to Bill Pepper, who keeps asking questions.
6: What did he do with the gun? Where did he go? He handed the gun to Earl and he went and got in the car and he left through the where the two billboards was at. Turned right and got in the Mustang took off. Uh, Earl handed the gun to the old man. The old man carried it inside. Earl jumped the wall and took out. I took out behind Earl. We all went down to the Quonset
7: So Earl gave the gun to Jowers? Yes, he did. Jowers took it inside? Apparently so. What happened to that taxi driver?
6: The taxi driver, I was told, was killed on either Highway 51 or Highway 55 by Chess Butler.
7: Now, how do you know Chess Butler did that?
6: Well, I heard Chess say you killed him, but that was in Chess's house when he was telling Mildred, my mother, that he took care of You were in the house at the time he was? I was in the bedroom, was sitting on the end of the bed. Linda Butler was sitting on the left side of the bed. I was sitting in the middle, and Danny Butler was sitting on the right side of the bed. The door opened out that way, and I could see Mildred, the back of Mildred. Mama was sitting right there, and Chess was standing up at the end of the table taking a drink of whiskey. What did you actually hear him say? I heard him say that he took care of the cab driver. Who told him to do that, you know? I'm gonna say it's either gonna be Holloman or, or Russell Jr. or Clark, one of the other. I'm gonna say it originated with Earl because apparently there was a lot of conversation down there at Earl about who saw him and who could identify him and who knew him that was there. So apparently the cab driver got a head on look at him after he come down the wall and when he turned. So oh, apparently that was a problem. So, so they what, sent Chess on him.
7: So what did Chess say? How did he say he
6: actually killed him? I, I didn't hear that. I mean, you, I, you know, I, no, I mean, you know, I wasn't looking for blood and gut shit. I just a man with his head blowed off yeah, yeah. or his chin blowed off.
7: Was the driver shot? Was he thrown off a bridge? How did, how did he kill uh, He it?
6: just said he dumped him off on the side of the road. Uh, I think he just took care of before he dropped him out. <laughs> This is what I do know. He was good with a knife. He loved to ice pick. He would shoot the shit out of somebody.
3: So according to Ronnie Lee Atkins, the driver of Cab 58 was murdered by Chess Butler, a friend of the family and someone who Atkins knew intimately. He had been in Butler's house when he heard him say that he killed the cabbie. But the most puzzling thing for Bill Pepper was that Atkins had said his brother Russell had fired the shot that killed King because Pepper already had strong evidence That it was somebody else. So Pepper asked Atkins again if he was sure it was Junior.
6: Yeah, I think Junior popped him. What
7: chance could there be that there was somebody else there that you would never have been told about?
6: Coon Dog's chance in hell. Huh? Coon Dog's chance in hell. I know who was there.
7: Not much chance, you think.
6: What happened? Not from where I was at, not from what I've seen, and not from what I know, and not from what we've discussed and and there wasn't a whole lot of discussing about that after that you know now there was some discussion about it but it was between junior and me and between mama and junior and between mama and junior and and me and that was where it stopped today is the first day i put that out other than i told steve about it so you just made me lay my family's ass out there on the highway but it's all right it needs to come out
3: so in graphic fashion in his own words in a legal deposition Ronnie Lee Atkins incriminated his father, mother, brother, and himself, along with the chief of police and many other people Ronnie knew as he was growing up. But why would Russell Jr. tell his little brother that he killed King if it were not true? I put this question to Bill Pepper. To protect him,
7: if if it was the brother that did it and the brother convinced the younger brother that he's the one who did it, it would give him that type of insulation, that type of protection. But I think that that's what it's about.
3: Pepper's explanation makes sense. If the killer who shot King is still alive, anyone who knows his identity is at some risk. So Ron's brother may have just been protecting him, or he might have been bragging to his little brother, letting him think that he was the big man. In any case, Bill Pepper was in possession of strong evidence that pointed to another man as the actual shooter that day. But at the time of the Atkins deposition, he couldn't say anything about it, even if he had wanted to. He was sworn to secrecy. The evidence Pepper had had been presented to him in the year 2003 and recorded under oath in the presence of King's eldest son, Martin III. But the fear that came with this testimony was such that Pepper had to promise not to reveal the evidence until the witness himself had died. Not your everyday kind of deal. So who was this man? He was a custodian at a rifle range.
2: Next time on the MLK Tapes.
5: He laid it on the counter. He said, Lenny, how you like that scoundrel? That baby there, I said, it's a rifle like the rest of the rifle. He said, no, he said, it's a special one. That baby's special.
7: The deal was that I would not reveal what he said while she was alive.
5: I had only two phone calls Fair, I called the union hall, talked to the lady there. was a reception there. The young lady I spoke to, I told her, I said, this is something very important. And she said, what is it, sir? I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill
6: Dr. King. I'll just say this much, and I have a profound belief in this. I don't think James Earl Ray could have put all this together.
7: You're right about that.
6: Earl Clark was a good friend of mine. He had uh, strong feelings about certain things.
7: Was he a good shot? Oh, yeah. And you are a hell of a shooter, from what I understand.
6: I'm a dead shot. I, I was then. But I don't have any idea why Jowers would do that.
2: Thanks for listening to The MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King Estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Clapper. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Ben Keebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsey are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set, cover art by Mr Soul 216 with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at themlktapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite
1: shows.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA, and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes